recent article from uh, the news and entertainment magazine Salon uh, was entitled, they called it this, The 12 Worst Ideas Religion Has Unleashed on the World. And as you, you might imagine, it listed hell as one of those 12 worst ideas. Here's what the article had to say. It said, invented perhaps as a means to satisfy the human desire for justice, the concept of hell quickly devolved into a tool for coercing behavior and belief. That's what they had to say about hell. Now, if you're new to City Church or you're just joining us by means of our podcast or our app, uh, thank you for being a part of City Church. Glad to have you. Uh, And I just want to catch you up to speed. We're in a series that's called I Have My Doubts. And each week in this series, we're responding to one of six major doubts or objections that people have to Christianity. And if you haven't already figured it out, uh, this week is Hell Week. This is a doubt about Christianity that many people have. In fact, I would even say that many Christians themselves have a hard time accepting the doctrine of hell. This became even uh, a bigger issue a few years ago when a former pastor by the name of Rob Bell uh, published a book questioning the existence of hell. And many Christians feel that Christianity would just be more palatable if we could eliminate the whole doctrine of hell. How do we respond to the doubts and the objections that people have to the Christian doctrine of hell? And I want to summarize their uh, doubts and objections Uh, by two statements. Here's the first one. A good and loving God could never send someone to hell. That's what many people would say. That a good and loving God could never send someone to hell. And then second, that the doctrine of hell and the doctrine of a good and loving God are mutually exclusive. So those, they are two different uh, objections, and I'll explain them to you uh, in just a few moments. But one of them is a good and loving God could never send someone to hell, and the doctrine of hell and the doctrine of a good and loving God must be mutually exclusive. Do you know what, what I mean by mutually exclusive? They, 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 they both can't coexist, okay? Uh, they're, they're, they're essentially opposites, okay? What do we say to those two objections? What do we say to those? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to the Gospel of Luke chapter 16, and we're going to see if we can respond. Luke chapter 16. By the way, I am, I'm proud of you guys. I am seeing and hearing, I'm seeing more Bibles, seeing more of you bringing Bibles. I've been challenging you to do that, and I've been hearing more stories about more of you bringing your Bibles to church. In fact, a woman this past week told me, she said, uh, she came up to me, and she said, she said, I was just using the Bible app on my phone, but I found it hard to take notes, and since you've been hounding us to bring Bibles, uh, I finally went out and bought a new hard copy Bible that I could bring to church. And I told her, I said, wow, that, I said, A, that is fantastic. That is great. I'm so proud of you. And then I said, B, do you know how beautiful you are? And that's not something that I would say to just any woman. Because this particular woman happened to be my own wife. My own wife wasn't bringing a Bible to church. And so she has started bringing one. Would you just show her a round of applause? Just tell her what a great job that is. We're so glad that you're bringing your Bible, Amy. Okay, we're in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. And this is a well-known passage of Scripture. As I said, we're going to start reading at verse 19. Luke chapter 16, start reading at verse 19. Jesus is speaking, and he tells this parable in verse 19. We'll put the verses up on the screen if you uh, you happen to not bring a Bible. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate 
in other words, at his gate outside of his home, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted to hear and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets... They won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, let's start with the objection that a good and loving God could never send someone to hell. That's Many people would say that. This is one of their issues with Christianity. They'd say, well, you know, a good and loving God could never condemn someone to hell. It might surprise you to hear me say, uh, I agree. Uh, a good and loving God could never send someone to hell. Never condemn someone to hell. Here's, here's the response that we would make to them. God doesn't. God does not condemn people to hell. Hell is a freely chosen identity that goes on forever. So God doesn't, God doesn't condemn people to hell. Okay, that's a big misunderstanding. God doesn't condemn people to hell. Hell is a freely chosen identity. That goes on forever. Now that's, I, okay, so that's a big statement. Leave it up there on the screen so people can write that down. It's a big statement. It's probably different than anything most of you have ever heard or understood about hell. What most people think of when they think of hell is, is a place that God condemns people to against their will. And they're just begging to get out of it. But God won't let them out. No, you stay there. You know, that's kind of what people think about when they think about hell. But... Uh, that's, that's just not the case. And I want to show you uh, from this passage why I say that. Did you notice in this passage that there are two characters in this parable, but only one of them has a name? Did you notice that? The poor guy, Lazarus, we know his name, but the other guy who really is, you know, does most of the talking in this parable, he's only called a rich man. Why? Why in hell does he not have a name? Well, I want you to look at verse 25. Look at verse 25. Abraham says, son, by the way, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a term of endearment, this, this word son. There's, there's, there's pathos here. There's, there's compassion. He's not, he's not being angry. He's not son. It's like, you know, son, son. I mean, it's, there's a sadness Son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your 
good things. Now, underline that phrase. If you have a Bible, underline it with emphasis uh, around the word your. Okay? Your good things. Okay? What he's saying is that the things that mattered the most to this man, the things that made uh, the things that to him made life worth living, that gave his life meaning, that defined him, that gave him a sense of identity, were temporal, uh, earthly things, namely uh, status and wealth for this guy. Perhaps this is someone like, uh, I don't know, Donald Trump. I, I'm, not, you know, I, 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 I'm not saying Donald Trump does or doesn't know the Lord. I, I have no idea, but I'm just saying maybe it's somebody like that. Okay? He pursued, he got... And he built his life around status and wealth while he was on the earth. There wasn't anything that he was living for on the other side of this life. Like he wasn't living for anything else. Okay? He didn't build his life around the God for whom he was created. He didn't care to be known as a servant of God. He wanted to be known as an important, rich man. And notice, would you notice that he freely chose that? God didn't put that on him. He just freely chose that. Okay? Now, the problem is that status and wealth, great things, they're good things. Really, they're, they're good things. But the problem is that none of that means anything in the next life, okay? You know the old saying, you can't, you know, you can't take it with you, right? So when you die, you know, it all goes back in the box. You can't take it with you, right? Okay. As a result, because he built his life around this temporal earthly stuff, um, he has no other identity, in the eternal realm. His identity was all temporal. He's got nothing in the eternal realm. Now, I do want, just so that you don't misunderstand, I want you to get this. Jesus isn't saying in this parable, he's not saying that having status and wealth is wrong. That's not what he's saying. And he's not saying that being poor is inherently good. He's not saying that at all. He's not against wealth and, and, and uh, for poverty. What he's saying is that the problem with this man is that he had turned legitimately Good things, status and wealth, those are good things. The problem, though, is that he turned good things into ultimate things. Good things into ultimate things. And if you've been here at City Church for any length of time, you know that that's how we define idolatry. You know, the first of the Ten Commandments was not to have any other God before God. I mean, you know, no idols. But what this man was doing was turning good things into ultimate things, idolatry. For this man, his good things, his ultimate things were status and wealth. For you, that might not be the case. For some people, it's knowledge. For some people, it's, it's family. For some people, it's sex or career or attractiveness or a good reputation or whatever. You know, in other words, instead of being defined by their relationship to their creator... People choose to be defined by something else, earthly, temporal, anything else, okay? And so when they die, they have no identity in the next life. And they live with no identity for eternity, with a world full of other people with no identity. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, wait, 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 Jeff, what about fire? I thought hell is full of fire. Jesus even mentions the fire here in this parable. Well, it, hell may be. Uh, there may be fire in, in hell. I, I, I mean, I don't know. But I, I would not rule out the possibility that the fire is a metaphor 
for the agony and the torment of living an eternity with no identity in the midst of a world of other people with no identity. Now think about it for a moment. Let's think about this one nameless man who built his life around wealth. It gave him meaning and identity. By the way, we could use, you know, we could, we could do this with anything, but for this guy it was wealth, so we'll use wealth. If money gives your life meaning, when do you have enough money? When? Never. You never have enough money. And so you're always in pursuit of something that you'll never have. Do you understand that? If meaning is money, you'll never have meaning. Never. What does it feel like when you want something desperately that you can't have? It feels terrible. It feels sad. You feel panic-stricken. Suddenly, you begin to feel like the loneliest person in the world. You begin to work harder and harder and harder to avoid that feeling and to get what you want. But you can never get it. And do, you know, do you know who the most cynical people in the world are? Most cynical people in the world are people who have built their life around something, got it, but realized they could never get enough of it to satisfy their constant, unending desire for meaning in life. Those are the most cynical people in the world. But because they've built their life around it, they can't stop because they don't know anything else. And so they keep on pursuing it, knowing it will never give them what they want. Do you know what we call that? We call that addiction. That's what we call that. Have you ever seen a stone-cold addict near death in the throes of their addiction? I have. Uh, They look like hell. Now look, I... That might not sound like what, what you think of when you think of hell. You might think, well, yeah, that sounds terrible, uh, but it doesn't sound like hell. Well, imagine this. Imagine being a stone-cold, miserable addict, living a meaningless existence, not just for a few years or a few decades until you die, but imagine living that for a thousand years. For a million years. For a billion years. With nothing to satisfy your thirst. Nothing. Not a single fix for your addiction. Not a drop of water on your tongue. Not an iota of relief for your addiction. You can't earn a single buck. And that's all you know. And you live like that for a trillion years. And then another trillion after that. And there's no hope for a cure for your addiction. And not only do you live like that. But you're living around a world full of other people like that. Not a drop of meaning for anyone. Not a moment of relief from their addiction. They're the walking dead. A place full of cynicism and despair. And psychological disintegration. And decay. And isolation for trillions and trillions and trillions of years. That sounds like hell to me. And you would think to yourself, man, uh, that that does sound like hell. And you think to yourself, if I were there, I would sure want out of a place like that, right? But consider something in this passage. Okay, Think about this passage. I want you to consider this. Nowhere in this parable does this rich man ever ask to get out of hell. 
He never asks to get out of hell. What he asks for is a fix, relief for a moment. Jesus describes it as a drop of water on his tongue. A drop of water isn't going to provide lasting relief for his existential thirst, and he knows it. But all he wants is a fix. He doesn't want to get out. He just wants a fix. Apparently, this existence is preferable to him over an existence in the presence of God. C.S. Lewis uh, always spoke of hell when he wrote about hell. He always spoke of it as a place, listen to this, as a place in which the doors were locked from the inside, not the outside. Why? Why does he say that? Because people in the throes of addiction, they know they're miserable, but they can't imagine being somewhere else. Try telling an addict that they need help if they aren't ready to get help. It doesn't work, does it? Have you ever tried that? I mean, I've done this. I've spoken to addicts. I've, I've, I've tried to be involved in interventions with addicts. They don't want help until they're ready. And some people never get that, to that place. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, he puts it this way, speaks of hell this way. He says, hell is the outcome of a constant effort to avoid God. It's the outcome of a constant effort to avoid God. And so, regarding the doubt or the objection that a loving God could never condemn a person to hell, Jesus' response to that is that God is so loving that he doesn't condemn anyone to hell. Rather, hell is freely chosen. It's a freely chosen identity that goes on forever. Yes, it's a place. It's a world. It's a world full of people with no identity, living a meaningless existence for trillions of years, experiencing psychological disintegration, uh, decay, uh, hopelessness, cynicism. That's what hell is. Is there fire? I don't know. Maybe Maybe that's a metaphor. I, I, I really don't know. I just know that it sounds like hell. Hell is freely chosen. It's not someplace God condemns people to. It's, it's a freely chosen identity that goes on forever. Maybe you could think of it this way. In his love, God just gives people what they always wanted, an eternity without having to endure him. Okay? A loving God could never condemn someone to hell. I agree. I agree. Jesus agrees. Hell's just a place that People have freely chosen because they really didn't want God. Okay. Second objection that people have to this doctrine of hell is namely this. Here, here, here it is. Let me repeat it. Okay. The doctrine of hell and the doctrine of a loving God are mutually exclusive. You know, the two can't coexist. Okay. And here's, Jesus would say to that, uh, he would say, he'd say, you're wrong if you think that. Sorry. Uh, but he would just say, you're wrong. In fact, here, here's exactly what he would say. You can't know the love of God without the existence of hell. Now think about that. You can't know the love of God without the existence of hell. Now, I I realize that some of you are probably thinking, okay, that's nuts. Uh, I, I can't even begin to believe that or understand that. But I just want you to hang with me. Let me explain. Look at the end of the passage, okay? What does the rich man ask of Abraham... For his five brothers. What does he ask? 
He says, he says, he says I, want a miser- I want a miracle. Send Lazarus back to my brothers. Now, why does he ask for that? He says it in verse 28. He says, let him warn them, his brothers. Let, it, let, let Lazarus uh, warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. In other words, in other words, if you send Lazarus back, that will be a naked miracle, the likes of which no one has ever seen, a resurrection from the dead. You cause that to happen, and let a dead man tell my brothers that hell exists, and it will change their life. But look at what Abraham says. No, he says, no. He says, that, that'll never work. Look at verse 31. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, that's... That's fascinating to me. He's saying, he's saying that ironically, the fear of hell won't keep anyone out of hell. Why? Understand that when Jesus chooses in verse 31, this word that's translated convinced, okay? Even if, you, even if, they, uh, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, that word convinced means more than just intellectual rationality. I mean, sure, the rich man in the parable is right in one sense. You resurrect someone's long-dead grandpa from the dead, let him show up at their house in the middle of the night, clanking around up in the attic with a bunch of chains on his arm, saying, there is a hell. It will probably literally scare the hell out of those people, right? Okay? Uh, But that's not what Jesus means. Yes, intellectually, they'll get it. There's a hell. But when Jesus used the word convinced, he means more than intellectual understanding. What he's saying is that the fear of hell will never change the fundamental structure of your heart. It might change your behavior, yes. Okay? It likely will change your behavior, in fact. But it won't change the fundamental, get this, the fundamental selfish structure of the human heart, which, by the way, is precisely what is wrong with this city and precisely what is wrong with this world and precisely what is wrong with every relationship that you have. It's that you and me, we have selfish hearts. That's the fundamental structure of the human heart. I'm more important than everyone else. That's what's wrong with this city and that's what's wrong with the world that we live in. Okay? Think about it. Just think about this. If all of a sudden these brothers say to themselves, they see Lazarus rise from the dead, and, they, and, and Lazarus says to them, there's a hell. Uh, if all of a sudden the brothers say to themselves, whoa, man, there is a hell, so I better straighten up and fly right. What is their motivation for doing so? Are they doing that? Because they have a newfound love for God that is driving them. An allegiance to God, an appreciation for Him so great that they want to live their lives for Him and obey Him. Is that what it is? Psalm 42.1, like a deer pants for the water. So my soul pants for you, O God. Is that what they're feeling? Or are they doing, are they straightening up and flying right? Are they doing that out of fear? Of course. It's the latter, right? They're just just scared. Selfishness is still their motive. They're just like, I don't want to suffer. Notice, Notice that in that case, their behavior may have changed, but their motive 
is still just as self-centered as it always was. Nothing about their heart has changed. And see, this is what so many people don't get, okay, about Christianity, about the gospel. Uh, The author of the Salon quote that I, I read to you earlier believed that the motive behind hell was just a way to coerce people to believe and to behave. But look, God isn't interested in that. He's not interested in scaring people straight. He's not interested in scaring people into believing and behaving. What he's interested in is wooing you. That's an old word, wooing, right? He's interested in wooing you. Not wowing, but he does that too. But he's interested in wooing you into a relationship. He's interested in an intimate love relationship in which you love him more than you love yourself even. Because that is the only thing that will change your heart. Radical love. Radical, unconditional love. Not fear. Radical, unconditional love is the only thing that will change the human heart from selfishness to other-centeredness. Radical, unconditional love. The kind of love that keeps on loving you with all of the issues and all of the sin and all of the mess in your life. The kind of love that doesn't demand that you get your life straightened out before the relationship begins, but is willing to accept you into the relationship just as you are. Only that kind of love can transform the human heart and heal it of its narcissism and its self-centeredness that drives people into the addiction to good things that are not ultimate things and that destroy them and destroy the cities that they live in and destroy the relationships. See, this is the thing that most people don't get about Christianity. And frankly, I will tell you, that is as true of Christians as it is people who would not identify themselves as Christians. This is why you have these churches every year at Halloween. Oh my goodness, I hate this. Every year at Halloween, there are these churches that do these, you know, like they're, they bring kids in and they try to scare the hell out of them. And I'm not, I'm not using that, you know, pejoratively. I'm saying they, they, they literally try to scare the hell out of them. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, they, they bring them in, like they show them a hospital room where a drunk driver has been killed and, and you know, they put the paddles on them. They're trying to scare the kids, right? Try to scare them straight. You, do, okay, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Do they do that around here? You don't know what I'm talking about? Well, we'll do it this Halloween, and then we'll, you, think you guys will know what we're talking about. How about that? No, no, no. Uh, but they do that. I mean, they just try to... And so, like, it's the Halloween thing. That's not... Look, it might, it might scare kids straight. But that's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. Okay? This is why there are people in churches, every church I've ever been in, there are people in churches who complain that the pastor isn't preaching about hell enough. Like, you know, you need to preach more hell. Their belief is that, the more, is that more hell will intimidate people into believing. But Jesus says that won't work. That, that won't work. It might intimidate people into behaving, but it won't intimidate them into believing. This is why you have so many church leaders who use guilt and shame and manipulation to get people to give or to volunteer or to not have sex or to come to church or whatever he wants them to do that particular Sunday. And you know what? That stuff works often. But it's not Christianity. It is not the gospel. The gospel isn't about avoiding hell. The gospel is about experiencing a kind of love that is so deep and so wide and so wild that it can transform your selfish heart. 
And where are we going to find that kind of love? Well, Jesus tells us here in this parable, indirectly, when he says, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, wait a minute. That did happen. Somebody did rise from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. And yet, he's right. There are still people, right, who don't believe. I mean, they do everything they can to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But why? Why is that not enough? Here's why. Because you have to know why Christ was dead in the first place before you can ever be changed. This is why Jesus refers to Moses and the prophets in this passage, you know, the Old Testament. He says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets... Even if somebody's raised from the dead, it's not going to make a difference. Okay. Because if you read Moses and the prophets, that's all they had when Jesus was speaking. Now we have the New Testament. But if you read the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, they're all about Jesus. Okay. You read them, you understand that it was God's will to crush Jesus. Why? Why was that God's will? Because humanity has rejected God and everyone Me, you, everybody turns good things into ultimate things which destroys them and their cities and their relationships and the whole world. All of humanity are sinners. And on the cross, Jesus would take the punishment for our sin. He paid our debt. Okay? Now, okay, stick with me. Remember what I'm saying. Okay, stick with me. Just tell me, just say, yes, I'm with you. Would you say that right now? Okay, because now we're coming. This, we're... We're coming home, and I mean, like this is this is the pay this is pay dirt that we're getting to right now. Are you clapping that we're coming home, or are you clapping that we're going to hit pay dirt? I'm not sure which one you're clapping for. You're just clapping. <laughs> uh, okay, here here we go. Because you know what we're talking about is that you can't know how much God loves you unless you believe in the existence of hell. That's 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 where we're at. That's the point we're in. Okay, now listen to this. Imagine someone tells you. That while they were watching your house, you know, you went away on vacation and you said, would you watch my house? Imagine someone tells you that while they were watching your house, uh, there was a bill that came due and they paid it for you. How do you respond to that? Well, look, it's kind of hard to know how to respond unless you know the amount of the bill, right? Okay, so like if it's a $3 bill to the Girl Scouts, I mean, okay, that's really nice of you. Thank you so much. But what what if it was like your whole mortgage? Like, what if they paid off your whole, not just one month, what if they paid off the whole mortgage? Or what if it was that 10 years of back taxes that you owe and the IRS had come to collect it or take you to jail, one of the two? That would change uh, how you would respond, right? Knowing the cost, knowing how much they paid, uh, that changes your response. Would you agree with me? Nod. Yeah, we agree. Say amen. Okay, good. Say, say, okay, good, good. Um, you're with me. Okay. Knowing the cost to Jesus to rescue you will help you understand the depth of his love. What was the cost? What was the cost? What did he suffer on the cross? In short, what Jesus suffered on the cross was hell. On the cross, he took hell for you. He suffered total and complete cosmic isolation from the one that he loved the most and had loved for all of eternity. He was forsaken on the cross. He was lonely in a way that you have never experienced. He experienced a disintegration, an agony, 
and isolation greater than you or I would experience in an eternity in hell. Why? Why did he suffer that? Because he loved you, and that was the only way to rescue you. You see, until you believe that Jesus didn't suffer just some physical pain on the cross or even just some emotional pain on the cross, until you believe and understand that Jesus experienced hell, unless and until you believe in hell, you'll never know the depth of Christ's love for you. You'll never know how far he went for you. You'll never know how much he loved you. You know, here's the thing. Ironically, when people try to get rid of hell in order to make God more loving, like they do that. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, I don't, uh, my God loves everybody. Uh, I don't believe in hell. I believe in a loving God. And then you might ask them sometime, if you ever hear somebody say that, just ask them sometime. Just say, well, what did it cost your God to love you? Well, I don't know if it cost God anything. He just loves everybody. Well, I would just say, you don't know how much he loves you. You do not know how much he loves you until you know how far he went. It didn't cost him anything to love you. I might honor that God. I might like that God. I might appreciate that God. But my selfish heart is not going to be transformed by that God. My selfish heart is only going to be transformed by a God who so loved me that he would suffer hell for me. When people try to get rid of hell in order to make God more loving, they actually, ironically, make him less loving. And so we're back to the thing that we always say here, that the cross changes everything, even the human heart. Even the human heart. And once human hearts are changed, cities can be changed. Last thing on our banners around the room says, change the city. Change the city. It's, it's our hearts have been changed, and then cities can be changed, and relationships can be healed, and hope can be restored to people. God isn't interested in scaring you away from hell. He's interested in changing your heart so that you love him more than you love yourself, because that is the only hope for the city of Evansville and the world. Fear never changed a human heart. Never. Only radical Unconditional love displayed in the person of Jesus as he hung from a Roman cross who suffered hell for you, for me. Only that can transform a human heart. Would you bow with me for prayer? How far you went, Lord Jesus, how far you go for every person in this room, for the most moral person in this room, For the person who has committed immoralities that they're ashamed of. That they would never want everyone in the room to know about. You suffered hell for that person. You suffered hell for the moral person. How far you went for me, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that that truth would sink into us this morning with a depth that we have never experienced before. Lord Jesus Christ, would you just drive that home? There may be people in the room this morning that have never heard that. Maybe they're here this morning and they've been counting on what a good person that they are. So, you know, somehow that by being a good person, they could obligate you to having to give them eternal life with you. Uh, Lord, would you just speak to them this morning that 
uh, in all of their morality, they're still not what they need to be to have a relationship with you. And then, Lord, there are people maybe in the room this morning that, you know, it's like they just look at their life and they go, man, it is just, I'm just so ashamed of all of this. I'd never want Jesus to know. Lord, would you, just, would you just speak to their hearts to say, I see all of that and I want you still. I suffered hell for you. That's how far I went for you. Would you just communicate, communicate and convey that to them? And Lord, whether the moral, whether the, the immoral, whatever, I pray, Lord, that you would bring them in this moment, this morning, to a personal relationship with you, that they would believe, uh, not clean their life up first or uh, anything, but they would just believe in you. And that as a result of that, you would begin a relationship with them forever that will transform their stone-cold hearts and turn their selfishness into other-centeredness and into a love for you that causes them to pant for you like a deer pants for water. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done on our behalf. And it's in your name that we worship and pray today. Amen.